0: This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Ullman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex.
1: Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one.
2: sorry now I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Van Stem will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other songs so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn
3: song.
2: So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own
3: style.
1: And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand.
4: Miss Connie Francis, who's calling now?
1: It would sell over 1 million copies, going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way.
2: I remember after Who's Sorry I was a big hit, my mother one night said take out the garbage and I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore, I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big hit. She would see me writing in my diary and she said, you're writing in your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important.
1: She said that to you?
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) That's a pretty good humbling thing. (laughs) Do you you thank her for for, uh, doing that? Yes, I do. (laughs) Her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was.
3: Italian
2: home in, in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old, broken-down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said, accordion, like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first
3: concert.
2: And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio.
1: You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting to learn the accordion (laughs) at that age.
2: (laughs) The accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since.
1: Can you re- really remember that age? I'm, I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three? You know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, so I do I'm just remember. curious how vivid I remember your memories it are. If it
2: were yesterday?
1: Do you remember being ner- nervous before? No, this? I
2: wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage.
1: <laughs> Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood. That's called the Italian down neck in Newark, New Jersey, and what was also ever-present was food.
2: Well, f- food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have a sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich.
4: Oh, done. Where do you taste this cocoa, man. It'll <laughs> <laughs> melt in your mouth. I call it communion.
2: <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're
1: going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franco Nero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change.
2: He was having a hard time pronouncing Franco Nero, so he said, come over here little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see, like what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Franca tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs>
1: Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records. And what hooked them was her demo song, Freddy.
2: It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy Freddie. Like that.
3: You have a standing invitation. Come.
1: MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song largely because it was the name of his son whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now? And then the scary realization. Where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon?
0: And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on our American Dreamers stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis. And when they left off, she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now. But would she have another one?
2: Donnie Kirshner, and he was a publisher with a broken down office and a broken desk and a broken chair. And he called me and he said, I have two kids. They're phenomenal. Uh, they're great songwriters. I said, everybody has great songwriters. So... He said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil.
1: Neil Sadaka.
2: And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Husari now hit. We had lost our middle class home. We were living in a rented apartment in New York. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and... I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song. It was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play this song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. i got to write my diary yet. So I was on my belly writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next
3: record, Stupid Cupid,
1: hit title.
3: Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd
5: like to clip your way so you can fly.
1: Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year for Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of of what was going on with your family?
2: Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57, I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. At the end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female
1: vocalist. Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship.
2: Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing O Sol in Nio in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he'd get his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered when I did Make It On Refix. I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages.
1: And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis Sings Italian Favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four, and to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single, Mama, would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish. A language that she actually learned as a young kid.
2: Three years old, we moved in with my grandma we lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in, in their colloquial
1: language. How, how did you learn it?
2: I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood.
1: And how old were you when, when you learned it as well?
2: Five years old.
1: Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in, you mean that? I'm just joking.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my
3: neighborhood.
1: I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your your first experiences? Um, You know, any any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you?
2: Oh, they accepted me all right. The, The Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even till today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made.
1: And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's.
2: Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all, because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's. There's no guttural sound like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese.
1: I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting.
2: You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before.
1: (laughs) You're right,
3: Connie.
1: (laughs) And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union... Did.
2: If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or or death. Um, I did a radio show on um, the radio Luxembourg, which was a Clear Channel fifty thousand watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, there were fifteen million listeners a day, and it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain, and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, fifteen minute show every week from New York, and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store, and they sold only classical music. Uh, Pop music was not was banned. And I heard uh, the song, Oh, Calcutta, and there were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, "Uh, Do you like American music? And they said, Nein, nein.
1: No, no. I
2: said to them in German, And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they they had heard my my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German and they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know, it was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, which was a horrible thing.
1: And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary breaking. Her title track for the movie, Where the Boys Are, would reach number four on the charts. And the Fort Lauderdale, Florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break. And it caught on a little too immediately.
2: When I went to do the movies, well, Fort Lauderdale was a prairie. It was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city. That was the police force. When Weather Boys, it was released in December and January at Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall
3: and at the Gateway Theater down here
2: in Fort Lauderdale. 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale. And they had a call in the National Guard, they had a call in the Coast Guard, I-95 was a parking lot, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude, on top of a flagpole, and Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County
0: my goodness what storytelling and when we come back more of this amazing life this remarkable singer our american dreamers series connie francis's life her story here on our american stories is our American stories and now the final portion of this great American dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis
1: Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream but not every chapter of her story has been bright in 1974 while appearing at the Westbury music fair in New York she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately.
2: It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview and I I didn't, uh, uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered. And then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime and I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the earnest resistance law in New York where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California, not the one to repeal gay marriage, but Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California, and within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%.
1: What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened?
2: My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that.
1: How close were you guys in age?
2: Two and a half years. He was younger than I was.
1: I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to...
2: How to cope with it. I'm yeah. a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, but I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have a, had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends. And also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through Everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals.
1: Huh. What kind of humor have you found there?
2: Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. <laughs> 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 it was one thing. Then they said to me, we, uh, you have, I said, wait a minute. They, they wrote down Peggy Smith uh, on my admittance. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith, I'm Connie Francis. And they said, no, we do that to protect your identity. I said, I want people to know where I am. I want my name. No, it's a hospital procedure, you have to be Peggy Smith. I said, look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star. So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay.
1: (laughs) To close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren wanted to elope after one of her shows, he ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again.
2: He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died.
1: Was there anything against him personally that he had?
2: Well, he was male to begin with.
1: So just the fact of another man taking taking his daughter? (laughs) So it could have been any male. (laughs)
2: But especially Bobby. I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write, although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain.
1: A career where she also found deep meaning. What's Connie? What's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you?
2: I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person, and I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero.
1: What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you?
2: Horrible. The MACV hospitals were—they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, say for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys and 18-year-old kids, the average age of a Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers.
1: Um, Was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go.
2: I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton, and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, 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 was, what the war was really all about.
1: Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims, an American dreamer.
0: And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said, about entertaining the troops in Vietnam, and it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard. The Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable. Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you. Miles Davis, too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories.
3: That in the window, <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. how much...
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, window. and we cover every topic I you can imagine. Love, death, sports, art. I just I listened to the Andy Grove piece we'd done. California, what a life this man led, leading lead Intel, leading the microprocessor and microchip revolution. If he has and lowering the cost of everything and making it faster and better and ushering in, well, everything we use practically that we love in terms of technology, Andy Grove, use. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Read that. Watch it. Listen to it. It's terrific. And we're playing this music because it's time for our The Burning Question segment, which we do each week with The Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And The Burning Question at the Journal... With those great journalists and those deep thinkers and those incredible writers and these well trained, seasoned veteran journalists, is can kissing your dog make you sick? And I got to tell you, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one, Heidi. Thanks for joining us.
5: (laughs) Important journalism being done on it, kissing your dog. Well,
0: let me it, tell you why it's, it's important, important, Heidi. Stuff. I'll tell you a story. I'm away at my family farm. We go. We do this every few weeks, and we get together with cousins and relatives, and we just do nothing. There's not even cell coverage at this farm in the middle of Mississippi. And I'm watching my little pug go out into where the, into the stable where the horses are, and he sleeps with us every night. And he started to eat the horse poop. You smell what I'm cooking, Heidi? So let's talk about this, because this is an important question. (laughs) How did you get to this, by the way? How did you get to this question this week? Why this question?
5: Well, this was one of those questions that someone in the office asked, because she loved her dog, and she lets her dog kiss her all over the place. But, you know, we live in the city, most of us, and so there's a lot of icky stuff that the the dogs are picking up, Um, but... I have to say, it's something like 6% of dogs eat bears or other animal species, so it's not so rare what your dog's doing uh, in the barn there.
3: That's
0: good to know. Yeah. I don't feel so yeah. alone. Uh, so tell me, what what's going on inside that dog's mouth? I mean, I've always heard the dog's mouth is the cleanest place in the world. They have special bacteria, and no matter what they eat, all's just dandy. Talk about that.
5: Well, the thing is, is that their mouths are special. You know, they've evolved with all this yucky stuff in there and it doesn't make them sick for the most part, right? I mean, most dogs are pretty healthy, happy, loving animals and part of the family. And what they carry in their saliva is a lot of bugs. They carry a lot of stuff in there. Um, There's some stuff that, that isn't going to be harmful to humans. There's some stuff that isn't going to be harmful to them. And then there's the stuff that ain't so great. And those are things that doctors worry about.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. So you talk to someone named Dr. Sykes, the interim director of the Mm -hmm. Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital at UC Davis. And this is where the journalism comes in, because you've got this burning question that may seem silly, but it leads you down some pretty interesting paths. So what do you learn about... It's
5: amazing, because there's experts in everything, That's right, that's right, that's right. (laughs) They (laughs) devote their whole lives to studying these things.
0: Well, it's good to know that this doesn't make our dogs sick, but the question becomes, does it make us sick? So what does he have to tell us, Dr. Sykes, about your burning question?
5: So it's a she, but she has lots to say about it. So the most crucial things you need to think about are Campylobacter, which is a food poisoning agent, um, Giardia, which can cause diarrhea. diarrhea You've probably heard of Giardia. Mm-hmm. And Salmonella, which is you know an yep. organism that affects the gut and makes you have to take a couple of days off work or at least not be in public for very long. Um, And all those are just stomach ailments. They're really not, probably not going to kill you. They might cause dehydration and lots of diarrhea and and pain in the gut. But if your dog is licking you all over your face and getting that saliva in your mouth, you know, you can catch that stuff. But it can get worse than that, which is, uh, I can't even pronounce these words, but captos, cytophagia, canimorsis, and pastorella multisoda, And those are... um, They can get into your bloodstream, and they can even cause, occasionally, meningitis, ah, which can kill you.
0: Yeah, that's not good. And so, basically, he's saying, if you're going to kiss the dog or let the dog kiss you, not on the mouth, and leave open wounds alone, and don't let the hound hound your wound, basically.
5: So, this is something totally disgusting to me, because she spent a lot of time speaking to me about not letting your dog lick your open wound, and... I was shocked that people would even do that. I mean, I guess if it's a little scratch, maybe you're like, oh, that kind of feels good. But, but an open, gaping wound just sounds totally disgusting. And <laughs> if you look on the comments on the, on the page that we posted it on, on the journal, a lot of people talk about their dogs licking their open wounds, that, you know, it'll cure it and help it heal faster. I mean... It's not going to help. It's still it's an open wound, and then you're filling it with all these bacteria that you're already trying to fight an infection, and then there's all the stuff that's coming in, bacteria and little organisms. Not such a smart idea to have you make no. your open no,
0: wound yuck. No, it's That's super yuck. Let me ask you about this, because there are other ways for this saliva to get to us, and I did not think about this, but it's not just kissing okay, the so wound or kissing the mouth. It's, exactly. It's that catch ball so that we really play where with.
5: It gets worse, right? Because... What do most people do? They play catch with their dogs. They pick up that juicy tennis ball covered in slobber, and they throw it. The dog catches it, picks it up with its slobbery mouth, brings it back, fetch again, and then you know your hands are covered in slobber. And then you know you wipe your people wipe their face something like sixty times an hour. You know, so you're getting it in your eyes, and your nose, and your ears, and your mouth. All that slobber is going somewhere into your body. Uh, So, you know, you should maybe carry some Purell or wash your hands after or just try to be cautious of wiping your face when you're playing with your dog.
0: Yeah, and and, you know, one one thing I wanted to ask you is you write in your piece uh, about, well, getting infected by your canine. I mean, ultimately this can happen, as you were just describing um, in in the piece. What do you do if, if you are infected by your canine?
5: So it's funny because... Most people would think, um, well, you call your vet because your dog got you sick, so your dog must be sick, but your vet really can't treat a human. Right. And she said that there's a lot of, it's like 50-50 people think I called my doctor, I call my dog's doctor, but you really need to call your doctor. So your doctor's the only one that can prescribe antibiotics or whatever needs to be done to get rid of these bugs in your body that you got from your dog.
0: <laughs> you know, you have a couple of, uh, there are some comments, obviously, and the joys of modern journalism or doing anything in public is that you're going to hear from folks. And one, one person, George Ann Mark Miller, wrote Canine blaming is bigotry. The authors are people privileged. Don't need no vet splaining. <laughs> Ouch. So, so for the people who think you're hating on the pups, What do you got to say for yourself? Um, You got some explaining to do. Well, first
5: of all, you got to never read those comments if you write these columns because they're all filled with, I don't know, these people have a lot of time on their hands. I know. Um, And they always say mean things. But there are people who are, I'm sure, loving up their dogs and sleeping with their dogs. And, you know, they are part of the family, and I get that. I'm not a dog owner myself, but I get they love their dogs and nobody likes to hear that your dog's carrying germs. But look, my kids are carrying germs, too. So I got to wash my hands when they come home, too. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. it's What is
0: really strange, though, Heidi, is, you know, my wife watched the dog eat the poop and has watched this before and allows this dog to sleep with us and kiss him. If I went out and ate poop, my wife would not let me kiss her. Why? Why the discrimination against the human? This human hating—that's what I want to know, Heidi.
5: Not you know <laughs> there is a, there is the flip side of the coin. Some people do believe it's called the hygiene hypothesis. That the more exposure you have to yucky, dirty germs, the more your immunity immune system is going to build up
3: That's and right. then not
5: react when it comes in contact with other foreign objects. So, you know, there's there's research being done on that right now, but it's not conclusive yet. <clears throat> but she you know, she might have something there. She might have something h- otherwise there. Otherwise healthy. I mean, pretty much th- what Dr. Sykes worries about is children under five and people over 65. Right. And also people who are already immunocompromised, like a pregnant woman or, um, you know, a drug user or someone who cancer, so if you're healthy, you know, you're occasionally getting licked by your dog, even your dog that's eating the poop in the barn. Maybe
0: you're going to be okay. <laughs> That's right. Hey, let me read you another one. kiss your wife. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let me read one from Ian Andrews for you. Five dogs occupy my bed. Five dogs kiss me throughout every day, every week of the year. So far, so good. Also, this is my fourth generation of pups. I treat them all the same. They get to kiss me and sleep next to me in bed. They're better than girlfriends or wives as they don't complain about us. And any BS... <laughs> So there you go. You really tapped a nerve with this one, didn't you, Heidi? Oh, they
5: hate me. They all hate me. <laughs>
0: they hate you. Hey, Heidi, when you guys are sitting around, do you, it, it, how does this happen? Do you have a consensus? Do you have a group meeting and and say that's the one? How does, how does the, how does the uh, subject get picked each week?
5: Sometimes it's just like we're sitting around. Sometimes my husband will email me something from work and be like, oh, I need to know is a stand-up desk better? Or, um, you know, or I'm driving in the car for six hours and I'm like, my back really hurts. Is there a better way to stretch my back? And they're like, that's a great burning question. Sometimes they're like, you know, it's getting hot. It's getting cold. Should I worry about my wet hair? You know, so it varies. Sometimes we get emails. Anybody can email in burning at wsj. dot com. They can mail in their questions, and we can have that random question you never thought to ask answered by an expert.
0: Well, Heidi, I appreciate what you're doing. It's just fun to do with this. And I think next week we were we were discussing this. And we're building a pool at our house, and if you remember, there was always that wives' tale: you eat a tuna fish sandwich, you got to wait a half hour. You eat a roast beef sandwich, you got to wait 45 minutes before you can swim. And there was always this one person at the pool who knew exactly how long you had to wait. Before you could actually go in the pool, I think that may be one of our burning questions. Um, not that I want to impose on you, but you know, every once in a while we think the, we think these thoughts too. Now you got us thinking about these things.
5: When it gets a little bit warmer, we we'll, we will circle back
0: on that one. Awesome. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, and uh, come back more. Thanks. Come back each week, please.
5: Thanks, Lee.
3: Take care. You,
0: you bet. Enjoy. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The burning question, can kissing your dog make you sick? And uh, I just keep thinking about my dog in that barn, and that makes me sick just thinking about it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, and we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, death's a part of life, and sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship, and the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story
4: nothing stays the same for long things and people change often for the worse it seems but once in a while very much for the better i grew up on a small farm living a life that i took for granted i had a dog without a leash mountains in whatever direction i looked ...and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart... ...with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All I took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all-too-familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, What do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, Yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward, or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing.
0: It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way his dad's story, and that bully's story. Here on Our American Stories. Is Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show from American history to the arts to sports and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country. All of it you can hear. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter. And go to iTunes. And type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself.
6: Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known conmen in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, you know what kind of criminal we're talking about.
7: From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states, and I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. While the
6: film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source. Especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious conmen to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal.
7: I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school.
6: Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. His parents were getting a divorce.
7: I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon and asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said Family Court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response. But eventually, the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench. So I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age... I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again.
6: So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran.
7: In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, ordered what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? At 16. How far'd you go in high school? At 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the 4, converted it to a 3, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet.
6: By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be.
7: One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work on the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often, I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there, the checks were good, but it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good, Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. Years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan.
6: As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot.
7: I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it, I could pose as a pilot, I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park, I went to cross over, I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was gonna say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Yes, ma'am. I'd like to, um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, maybe you can help me. My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, Yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry cleaned. Now the hotel and the cleaner say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? But I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, My supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know, so I went down to the well-built uniform company, Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. I said, no problem, I'll write you a check. <laughs> no, um, we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll, um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that.
6: <laughs> when we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with a fake ID. This is Our American Stories.
0: To the story of the real life Frank Abagnale. As told by Frank himself, he successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor, and now we return to his story. Here's Jesse.
6: The logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy.
7: I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages. So I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. Identification. There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. It started to call around, and finally one company said, "Listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company. Need to call one of them." Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, you know, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. I wonder if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit and the sales rep opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am. Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. I wonder if you have a sample I could bring back sure i'll be right back and he brought me back a five by seven glossy piece of paper with a picture of an id card blown up in the middle of it someone else's picture in the picture john doe for a name and in bold red ink across the front this is a sample only i said no i'm afraid this one do you know i need to bring back an actual physical card And by the way what is all this equipment on the floor Now we don't just sell these cards we sell the system camera laminator oh we have to buy all this absolutely but well, tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, have a seat right here. Take my picture and I the car.
6: Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world, pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly.
7: pay am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says, keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey Pan Am, what can we do for you? I wonder if the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening. I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give my ID, write me out a pass. I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant. She'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer in a seat behind the captain called the jumpsuit, where pilot's deadhead on company time.
6: Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle, scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5.
7: I'd go down the Parma House Hilton walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk, was a little sign that said airline cruise. That was a three wing binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID, they'd give me a key, I'd stay two or three days, and Pan would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check. Actually a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air France. It would take me a good eight hours, stopping at every counter and every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again.
6: Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check, he was inevitably caught.
7: Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I would forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the warrant. And Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignon. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmo, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released.
6: That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day.
7: This year, I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday, I fly up to Washington, about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40-plus years and my three sons.
6: And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories.
8: Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away And what a story, and that's what we do here on
0: Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories. Your stories, too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up there, register with us, give us some details. We'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages.
8: Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may hear angels cheer, cause we're together. Whether wise, it's such a lovely day Just say the words and we'll beat the birds Down to Acapulco we'll Bay It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Once i get you up there where the air is rarefied
0: we'll... this is our american stories and we return to the story of frank abignell it was played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over 350 million, or six times more than the 52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around LA, but quite a few in New York, Montreal. And as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse.
6: In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures, he doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort. And unlike how he might be perceived by his fans is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth.
7: As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film. But we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally, every week on HBO and TV, and then become a (laughs) Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, and they feel compelled to write. And of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant, you were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life, and will until my death.
6: The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child.
7: There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted that I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now the world is the world is full of fathers, but there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy, loved his children, more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the more I researched Frank's youth. Now without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you, I love you very much. He never, ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps. He was 6'4". He played semi-pro football for Buffalo. But my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear. He loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make, so I ran. While
6: Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye.
7: How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down to the TV room? Because, you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs in New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that.
6: With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories.
7: I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions. That only in the end my actions will. Forty plus years ago on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me, but the truth is, God gave me a wife, She gave me three beautiful children. She gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime, we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes, the last thing you think about, last thing you worry about, are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give him a hug, you give him a kiss, you tell him you love him while you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man, next to God and his country, put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile. Nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. (laughs) Thank
0: Thank you. And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night never missed a night. Frank remembers I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course talking about family which we do so much of here on this show. He thanks God first. He thanks his wife second and the family and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce you're hearing or Thinking about this story as you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is our American stories. Frank Abagnale's story, in a way, his entire family's story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do.